One of the reasons I ended up a journalist is that at university I read philosophy, but Anglo-American study in the subject was focused too much on analytic philosophy, too little on philosophy derived from experience. I preferred experience to language analysis, so became a reporter. One philosophical point from my undergraduate days stays with me, though. Gilbert Ryle's concept of the category mistake. Ryle's first example of a category mistake is one of the few analytic concepts I remember from my undergraduate days, maybe because it gently mocks a foreigner's expectations about Oxford or Cambridge. A foreigner visiting Oxford or Cambridge for the first time, Ryle writes in Philosophy of Mind, is shown a number of colleges, libraries, playing fields, museums, scientific departments, and administrative offices. He then asks, but where is the university? It has then to be explained to him that the university is not some collateral institution. The university is just the way in which all that he has already seen is organized. I think about the category mistake when I think of my question, what is a nation? I particularly think about it in terms of Europe. What would you say to an American tourist who visits Britain, France, and Italy, and then asks, but where is Europe? Would you paraphrase Ryle and say, Europe is just the way in which all that you have already seen is organized? Is that what Europe is, the way the nations of the continent are now organized inside the EU? Is Europe simply a geographical designation for a particular area of the Earth's surface? Or is Europe finally inevitably becoming a single nation, but a nation of an evolved type for this new globalized millennium. This is not a speculative philosophical question. I began asking what is a nation out of my experience. I covered conflicts that were at heart murderous disputes about people's nationhood. Now, without guns, but surrounded by a certain amount of wartime rhetoric, I find myself covering the Eurozone crisis. There's a battle going on right now to hold the Eurozone together, and with it the EU and the possibility of a new idea of nationhood. The current idea of nationhood has its origins in Europe as well. There's not time to go through the whole history, but let's place its beginnings in the century of Enlightenment political thinking that began with Spinoza and Locke, writing theoretically, and ended with the very real political events of the American and French revolutions. These twin revolutions were actions based on ideas formulated by Locke and Spinoza. All men are created equal. The state exists to allow men to live in liberty, equality, and fraternity. We all agree with the idea of equality under the law, but there was a lot of blood spilled, particularly in France, before the idea could gain traction. And the agent who spread this idea of equality and brotherhood was Napoleon. I know he gets a bum rap in the British view of history, and I hope I'm not jeopardizing my status as a proudly naturalized British citizen by saying this, but I have a sneaking admiration for Napoleon in the early part of his career anyway, before he succumbed to megalomania. He saw a Europe in which most people lived without liberty or equality, in the kind of monarchical arrangements the French had risked so much to overthrow. So Bonaparte took the Grand Army off to conquer. Everywhere he went, he brought the Napoleonic Code, a codification of rights and laws. Equal citizenship was at the heart of it. Even Jews were let out of their ghettos and granted liberty and equality. The man in these early days was a titan, not just of military strategy, but political organization. 
Europe's boundaries were redrawn, not just to suit France, but to suit a modern age. For a very brief moment, Napoleon was seen by many as a liberator. Think of Beethoven's original dedication of the Eroica, that symphonic hymn to a new century and new Europe. But then Beethoven was told Napoleon had declared himself emperor, and he removed the name Bonaparte from the manuscript. Then the people of Europe removed Napoleon. Liberation brought at the point of a bayonet is humiliating. But in fighting to roll the Grand Army out of their lands, people took on a new kind of identity, a national identity. Nationalism supplanted feudal loyalty as a way for people to identify themselves. All men are created equal, but all nations are not. Napoleon wasn't the only imperialist in Europe. At the Congress of Vienna, the great powers redrew the map. Nations disappeared, were partitioned, or were subsumed into larger political entities, like the Kingdom of Prussia and the Austrian Empire. But partitions and subjugations didn't stop people from thinking that personal liberty meant the right to define their nationhood. For the last 200 years, revolutions have erupted, hot and cold wars have been fought, people are still shedding blood for 19th century ideas of nationhood. What makes the violence and hatred of this nationalist revival, from the Balkans to the Baltic, absurd is that it is taking place at a time when the old European definition of the nation-state is being superseded. Ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, Europe has been evolving from category mistake into a geopolitical and national entity. This hasn't always been a bad thing. Two decades ago, when the Schengen area first started to take shape, I found myself at a recently abandoned border control hut east of Dunkirk on the French border with Belgium. I recorded the sound of lorries thundering past a building where they once had to queue for hours to be weighed and assessed a tariff. It was a very useful sound effect to give my listeners in America a sense of the practical meaning of a border-free Europe. Business would boom. The abandoned building was of a 1940s vintage, and across the road was a steeply embanked river. It looked like a film set for a World War II movie, and conveying this image was an opportunity to remind my listeners of how often this border had changed hands, and at what price. Now there was a united Europe taking shape, and it wasn't brought into being by the Wehrmacht or the Grande Armée. Around the same time, I made my first reporting trips to Ireland. The occasion was the vote on the Maastricht Treaty, which the Irish endorsed. Dublin and the countryside were poor in comparison to other parts of Europe, but over the next few years, as relations with the EU deepened, Ireland's economy grew phenomenally. Infrastructure projects sprung up everywhere. By every highway improvement project was a sign reminding motorists who was paying for it. Not Britain, not France, not Germany. It was an entity called Europe. The euro was created by the Maastricht Treaty. The single currency was exactly what British Eurosceptics said it was, the first step towards the United States of Europe. But when you think of what nations must become in this still young century, what's wrong with that? How else to contain and manage a globalized economy in which finance dominates and the people who work in the financial industry no longer have to worry about national boundaries when they speculate? What is a nation? What is the meaning of national sovereignty when two speculators in New York or London make a high-stakes wager on the daily movement of a sovereign nation's bond yield? 
say Italy's. And then, because of this wager size, a frenzy is sparked in the wider bond market that leads to a one-day panic, that leads to a crisis, that threatens an entire nation's economic well-being, much less the entire global economic order. Sources told me of such bets being placed in the autumn of 2011, but I couldn't verify the stories. But here is an example that is well documented, the knock-on effect of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. An American investment bank fails because it was involved in risky securities backed by unsecured mortgages on American property. And the global economy seizes up and the Eurozone, which up to that moment was doing rather well, goes into crisis. Two small statistics. In 2007, the Spanish unemployment rate was around 7.6%. Crash. Today, it is over 23%. The Greek economy was growing by 3% in 2007. Crash. It has contracted by almost 20% since 2008. What place does that old 19th century idea of nation and national loyalty have in an unregulated economy of such globalized cause and effect? Can individual nations regulate this activity? So far, they haven't. Certainly those who work in the financial industry and those who provide luxury products and leisure services to them have evolved beyond that 19th century idea of a nation being a group of people tied by history and language to a certain place. We could be watching the birth of a new kind of nation, without common blood or soil, whose citizens share the same belief system learned at business schools. Markets are always right. Algorithms are never wrong. Born in one country, educated in another, living in a third, old-fashioned ideas of national allegiance and obligation don't apply to them. Perhaps a new kind of nation is necessary to create the power to regulate and contain this group. I doubt the late French president, François Mitterrand, or the former German chancellor, Helmut Kohl, the men who, more than any others, put the framework for a United States of Europe in place, did it because they foresaw the consequences of globalization and thought a single European confederation would be better placed to withstand a new tribe of speculators capable of destroying individual national economies with an algorithm pre-programmed into a supercomputer. I think they acted because the collapse of the Soviet Union gave them a unique opportunity to create a united Europe through a peaceful political process. The single currency was only the first step. When it was created, they knew it was flawed, that there needed to be an independent central bank that could create money and a common fiscal policy and pan-European political institutions to oversee the economic machine. But the euro was created by political negotiation, not by force, and in politics, you take the deal you can get. Will there be time to take the second step? Will the nations of Europe move beyond their history? I want to tell you one last story. It's about the poet Heinrich Heine, a great figure of our common European heritage. Born just as Napoleon was beginning to march into history, he suffered through all the early identity questions of European nationhood. Born a Jew, he considered himself a German, but like Beethoven, he too had a sneaking admiration for the early Napoleon, the liberator. Heine himself acknowledged he had been given his rights by a foreign conqueror, but only at the cost of his nation's humiliation. What is the role of the nation in the new Europe? Heine asked. He found an answer while touring from Munich to Genoa in 1828. As his carriage crossed an open space in the Piedmont, the driver leaned down and told his passengers they were now on the battlefield of Marengo.
The battle, fought in 1800, doesn't mean so much now, but it was the scene of Napoleon's first great triumph over the Austrians. Heine looked out over the fields. This was where it had all started to go wrong. Napoleon's megalomania began to take over after his stunning victory. French chauvinism replaced Napoleon's universal understanding of freedom. But that dream is still there. It is stirring. And then the poet has an epiphany about the nations of Europe. Gradually, day by day, foolish national prejudices are disappearing. All harsh differentiations are lost in the generality of European civilization. There are no more nations in Europe, only parties, and it is marvelous to see how these parties, for all their varying coloration, recognize one another, and how they understand one another, despite many differences in language. Our age hastens towards its great task. But what is the great task of our own age, Heine asks? His answer is emancipation, freeing the oppressed in Ireland, the Jews in Germany, slaves in the Caribbean, emancipating the whole world. All mankind together embarked on one noble task, not hampered by considerations of national pride. I still don't have a simple answer to the question, what is a nation? but I do think the great task of our time is emancipating ourselves from the blood-soaked definition of nation that has been around since Heine was prophesying that the nations of Europe would simply become parties in a larger grouping. As I write these words, the Greek crisis is approaching its denouement. By the time you hear them broadcast, the EU may be facing the greatest crisis of its existence. Yet I remain convinced that continuing to build a new country, called Europe, confederated or united, made up of many peoples with many histories, may be the best way to find the answer to the question, what is a nation, in the 21st century. <laughs>